All right, go ahead and grab a seat. Love you, Robert. Go ahead and grab a seat. We're going to dive in. All right. All right, we're going to go ahead and dive back in. Let me just remind you where we've been. We are in a series that we are calling um, Life on Purpose. And the goal of this series is for us to begin to recognize what it is we were created to do and how we can begin living it out here and now. And in the last couple of weeks, we focused on two things. One is our, our job or our identity statement, our what we were created, our job title, and that is to be an image bearer. And then secondly, our purpose. How do we begin to live as image bearers? We rule. He, God created us according to uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it, to begin to work the ground, to begin to care for the earth, to make something of the raw materials that he spoke into place. And we do so as his image bearers. And that means that we have a, a, the right and the responsibility to join him as his partners in moving the world forward. But today, we're going to talk about the elephant in the room. Because the reality is we talk about work. We talk about the, the joys of identifying our vocational calling. But in the back of our minds, we realize we don't live in Eden anymore. That, that that was tanked because of one very short-sighted but very long-reaching decision that our most ancient ancestors made all the way back there in Genesis chapter 3. And because of their disobedience, the world that we live in as well as the work of our hands has been thwarted. It, it has been corrupted. And so today we want to begin exploring that. But before we get there, let's go ahead and kind of lay the groundwork for it. So if you have a Bible... Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And, and as you're turning there, for me it's on page 3, so that makes it helpful. Um, as you're turning there, let me just remind you, uh, let, me, let me set the stage for this. Throughout Genesis chapter 2, we see God placing his image bearer, Adam, into the garden. And then out of his side, he creates a, a, a counterpart, a partner to him in Eve. She is to be a suitable helper. And by that, that is not derogatory in any sense, because the other person that is called our helper throughout scripture more than anyone is God himself. Instead, she is to be a fitting partner in moving the world forward. And we see this play out all the time. Because the truth of the matter is, Adam couldn't be fruitful and multiply apart from his partner, right? And we, we read again in first, uh, in Genesis 1, 27, that the man and his wife were both male and female are image bearers. So both of them bear that and both of them are called to help partner in moving the world forward. And with the last thing we read in Genesis chapter 2, is that the man and his wife were both naked or naked, depending on what part of the country you're from. (laughs) And they were without shame. They had no shame whatsoever. And it's an idyllic picture of God's intended reality for us in this garden of delight, which is what Eden means. However, it was very, very short-lived, as we will see, because all of a sudden, in chapter 3... We are introduced to a new voice, a new character. We've had God, 
the creator. We've had his image bearers, Adam and Eve. And now all of a sudden, in comes the serpent, who is a created being. But let's keep this in mind. Romans 12 points out the fact that that created being was actually, the serpent was actually Satan in flesh. And Satan was a created being. He used to be the leader of the heavenly choirs. That was what God created him to do. But unfortunately, Satan began to worship himself, began to think, I can do a better job than he can. And so he sought to usurp God's position in heaven and he fell. God cast him out of heaven. And Satan, in his anger, sought to strike a blow against God. But how he went about doing that is very, very interesting. And so let's read in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Keep in mind, he never actually said that part. But you must not touch it or you will die. You won't certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, because God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What I find very interesting here is that Satan, the serpent, is looking to strike a blow against God, but he doesn't come in and and, and try to hurt them physically because that would just upset their creator. Instead, what he really wants to do is hurt God where it matters. And so he seeks to drive a stake in their relationship between the creator and his image bearers, his partners. And so how do you do that? Well, the serpent immediately points to them and says, hey, by the way, you know how you know how you think that you bear his image? You really don't bear it as much as you think because he has made you deficient. He hasn't even told you about good and evil, has he? You don't even know the difference, do you? That's something he's kept from you because he really doesn't want you to be like him. And as the seeds of, of their self, like looking at themselves going, are we really deficient? Has God really withheld something from us? Is he not as trustworthy as we thought he was? And as the seeds of doubt begin to take root, suddenly the fruit of that tree begins to look a whole stinking lot more tempting to them. Because suddenly this fruit offers them what they think they need that they did not get from God. I like to call those things pseudo-saviors, the kind of things that we turn to thinking that they can provide for us, thinking that they can protect us from what we fear, thinking that they can give us what we think we are lacking. You can think in your own life of the kind of pseudo-saviors that you have a tendency to run to. For Adam and Eve, it was a piece of fruit that God had said, don't touch it. And so in a moment of reckless abandon, Eve reaches for the fruit and takes a bite. And then she hands some to her husband who's standing right there and he takes a bite. And we read in verse 6, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree that was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Their disobedience has long-term ramifications for them and for us. And, and there's three 
real um, victims or three real collateral things that happened because of this. Victim number one is their self-image. Suddenly, I mean, they, keep in mind, they are still God's image bearers. But suddenly when they look at themselves and they perceive themselves, it's as if they're looking at themselves through the warped uh, glass of a carnival mirror. And what they see is grotesque and embarrassing. They've always been naked. They never had a stitch of clothing on them. But for the first time in all of creation, that is no longer acceptable. They go from being naked and unashamed to being naked and absolutely ashamed embarrassed. They feel horribly vulnerable in their nakedness. And so they do what comes naturally. They reach for the closest thing at hand that they can cover their nakedness with. It's fig leaves in this instance. And they begin to to create a very thin veneer over their nakedness in order to hide. But hide from whom? From one another, right? God created them to be together, to be partners and yet all of a sudden now they're hiding from one another. So if, if man and woman's self-image is the first casualty, then the second casualty of the fall is their relationship with one another. Suddenly they are trying to hide from one another in embarrassment. And so they, they create a covering of fig leaves. And before we get on to them too hard, we do the same thing. We've just had a whole lot longer to come up with better fig leaves. And we do that with designer clothing and with job titles, and with accumulation, or with very carefully cultivated social media presentations of who we are, where we only show people the stuff that's praiseworthy. Nobody ever sees the stuff that's not. If we were to actually post some of those things, they'd probably start going, oh, dude, what's wrong with them? Because we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. There must be a whole lot more. So we're never honest on social media, we tend to just kind of go, hey, look at, celebrate this. So the first casualty is their self-image. Their second casualty is their relationship with one another. They go into hiding. They can no longer be vulnerable with one another. They hide from one another. And then the third casualty is their relationship with God. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. <clears throat> then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Um, This is a really, really sad moment because this is exactly what Satan had sought to make happen. He had sought to drive a, a stake between humanity, the image bearers, and the one whom they were created to partner with in moving the world forward. And suddenly that's happened. When they hear God's voice, they hide from him in the trees. And it, it leads me to ask the question, why on earth would God create in the first place? Why, if God is as good as we believe he is, and if God is as wise and 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 all-knowing as we believe he is, why would God create something like the tree and call it off limits, knowing the repercussions that it could have? Why not just create the garden, omit that tree, and say, everything is for you. Have fun. And I believe the reason why he chose to do that is because at the end of the day, he was not looking for puppets who would simply do exactly what it is he wanted to do without any thought. He was looking for 
partners who could join him in moving the world forward. And in order to have partnership, in order to have relationship, you need to have free will. Um, any of you guys have like a, an AI, like Alexa or Siri or something like that on your phone? All of us are kind of becoming a little bit more familiar with that. Some of you are resisting it. We have Alexa in our home. And this morning I, I told Alexa, hey, Alexa, tell me that you love me. She did. <laughs> She's like, and it's, it's straight up like, I love you. And I'm like, oh, I feel so much better. Actually not. I didn't feel so much better. I actually felt a little bit like that that feels weird. And then my wife who's in the bathroom getting ready for church is like, did you seriously just tell Alexa to tell you that she loves you? I'm like, hey, if you would just tell me more often, I wouldn't have to resume. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Kathy tells me all the time. It actually made me feel really silly asking her. Why? Why didn't it feel good to hear her say it? Because at the end of the day, she didn't have the ability to say otherwise, right? Because she is a program, an algorithm. She does what what the programmer has programmed her to say. And in the same way, God wasn't looking for us to simply be programs or robots who would do exactly what it is he wanted us to do. He wanted partners. In the same way that it makes me feel silly because Alexa doesn't have the ability to say otherwise, so she says she loves me and it means nothing. When my boys say that they love me, that means something. Because my boys very much have the ability to do otherwise, right? My boys can and often do say, no, daddy, we want mommy. Or to blatantly disobey my requests, my directives, my parenting to give me looks on their face that indicates they don't appreciate me trying to be a good parent and and train them up in the way they should go. Oftentimes they resist, which means that when they actually, like Grayson this morning, just want to cling to me, that means something to me because they have the ability to do otherwise. My point is, in order to have genuine, authentic relationship, you must have free will. And that is the reason why God chose to put a tree that was off limits in the garden. He was giving them a choice to trust me or not to trust me, to lean into relationship or to resist relationship and do it on your own, to partner with me or to go your own way. By the way, this is the same answer I would give to those who ask, how can we account for evil in a creation that was made by a good God? How? Because we because we have free will. We have the ability to make choices that are damaging. And this is the same conclusion that C.S. Lewis came to in his book, Mere Christianity. It's a wonderful book for those of you who haven't read it. This is what he said there. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that worked like machines, would hardly be worth creating. Of course God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently he thought it was worth the risk. So why did God place that tree in the center of the garden and say, don't touch it? Because he was giving Adam and Eve a choice. Do you want to join me in partnering and moving the world forward? Or do you want to do your own thing? Do you want to trust me? Or do you want to take matters into your own hands? And unfortunately, 
And probably inevitably, they chose to disobey. They chose to reach for the fruit. We are still experiencing the fallout of the fall. And it's really interesting to me to watch how God responds because he does something that seems very contrary to the heart of a loving God. He curses Adam and Eve. And he curses his creation. Let's read it. Jump down to verse 16 for a moment. <clears throat> now that we are skipping sections here, we're just trying to kind of grab hold of the narrative and understand how it flows. He begins by cursing the serpent. There will be enmity between you and, and woman. And he's really kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen when the, the, the offspring of Eve, the Messiah, would crush Satan once and for all. We're still looking forward to that, by the way. Once and for all. But then he turns to Adam and Eve, the image bearers, and he curses them. And pay attention to what he curses. He says to the woman, this is verse 16. He said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. That seems like an understatement. Having watched, only watched my wife go through this several times. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to your children. And your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. Remember, the word desire there is not indicative of just a desire to kind of be together. It's a desire to, to control, to, to have some sort of uh, influence over him. And he will domineer over you. A breaking of the marriage relationship. And then to Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate that fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return from the, to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. I want you to notice that the, the things that God chooses to curse are not arbitrary. They're very much in alignment with the very things that he actually created us to do. Remember that whole cultural mandate we talked about in, in Genesis 1.28? To be fruitful and fill the earth and to subdue it? Well, what are the things that God curses? He curses our ability to bring the next generation up. It goes from having children and then finding joy in that to having a lot of painful labor in the process of bringing children into this world and being fruitful and multiplying. He curses the marriage relationship. It goes from a beautiful partnership to being this power struggle. But he created us to move the world forward together and all of a sudden now there's enmity within the relationship. And then thirdly, he curses the work of our hands, the things that we do. No longer is the work that we have a blessing. Now it is cursed. And, and let me be really clear here. We often talk about work and people will, will read this and jump to the conclusion that work is the curse. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. Our work is not the curse. In fact, it was a, a, a blessing. All the things that God made us to do, remember the, the language of, first, uh, of Genesis 1, 28 is God blessed them 
and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule. Our work is a blessing. We have been blessed to join God in moving the world forward. But our work is cursed. And that changes our ability to find joy in it. Why is this an important nuance? Because if we look at work as a curse, then the goal of life is to avoid having to work, which means when you retire, you have arrived. But you were created to work in partnership with God. Work is no, you know, work isn't a curse in the same way that having kids are not the curse. And parents, for those of you with little kids, please no snide comments right now, okay? It is a blessing to be able to help train up, raise up, shape the next generation. It is a blessing to have people in our lives that we are walking with, journeying through life. We were created not to do life alone. We need one another. And it is a blessing to be able to join God in moving the world forward. But it is now cursed. What do we mean by that? I'm not talking about voodoo cursing, right? But God frustrated the very things that he called us to do, have kids, be in relationship, move the world forward through the work of our hands. He frustrated them so that we can no longer find satisfaction. We can no longer find our our provision. We can no longer find our identity in those things. And by the way, we now see, we still continue to experience the thorns and thistles of the curse. Here are just a few of them. That I, that I threw down. We've got fatigue, burnout, bickering, and back pain. Some of you take ibuprofen regularly. Um, morning sickness and stretch marks. Strife, litigation, greed, waste, poverty, injustice, and many of our favorite, counting down the minutes, hours, and days until you finally get to go on vacation, right? These are all part and parcel of the thorns and thistles that we experience in this broken, sin-scarred world post the fall. What one is that, Jeannie? <laughs> I know, thorns, I am your thorn. No, I I'm going on vacation with my boss. That's kind of awkward. <laughs> We're going to Israel together, okay? It's just clarity here. With others are going as well, yeah. Well, okay, that one. Detour. Okay, so we experience thorns and thistles, and we see the fallout of the fall all over the place. Take the developing world, which for the majority of the 7.5 billion people on this planet is their existence. They can barely find work. Right now in South Africa and in Australia and other parts of the world, they are having absolute famines where there is not enough water to even be able to grow crops to survive. And so people are starving and they work tirelessly to try to scrape together enough to feed their family on pennies a day. And those who are upwardly mobile, those who really want to kind of meet, get to the tip of the top in these developing worlds, will move to the city where they will often take a job in a sweatshop where they're working 14 hours a day on a, on a conveyor belt doing one thing monotonously over and over and over again. Like they are a nameless, faceless, easily replaced cog in a machine. 
They don't have the ability to sit back and go, am I really fulfilled by putting this battery into that Tickle Me Elmo? Right? They just need to work to live. And I know that they're being taken advantage of because there's thousands of others who would gratefully take their job if they were to quit because it's not fulfilling. But it's not just in the developing world that we experience this. It's not just in the developing world where we see people take advantage of and sell into slavery or be willing to put their bodies on the line to try to sneak somewhere else where they have more opportunity. We see this here in America, in the land of opportunity, the very place that so many people are trying to sneak into so that they can provide more for their family. We still see the effects of the fall here. I mean, you may know your vocation. You may know what God has called you to do. But when you look at your occupation, you look how you're spending your days, it's nowhere near it. And you feel discouraged. And, and you, just, you just can't wait to get off work every day so you can actually go do something that feels meaningful. Or maybe you have no clue whatsoever what you're called to do and you just, you just know that what you're doing right now, it feels like you're, ex- you're exchanging your life. The valuable days and hours and minutes for a paycheck. And it just feels empty. Or maybe you love what you do. But you work with some really irritating people. And the, the gossip and the backbiting and the cutthroat culture around you just sucks the joy out of you. Or maybe you're one of those that... You constantly are striving to finish the next project or to make your quota. And you, 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 you carry the stress of it. You're breaking out in hives because of the stress of it. And you come to the finish line and you finish the project and you just got it done. Or you make quota again, thank God. And then the day ends and the month ends. And you show up the next day to work and your boss puts another project on your plate. Says, you did such a good job with that one, this one's harder. Or your quota. You, you, you did such a good job, they, they elevate the amount that you're now needing to sell. And it all starts over again. And you feel like you are on a ceaseless hamster wheel, running and running and running, but going nowhere. I think that the writer of Ecclesiastes really tapped into the, the, the ethos of humanity that is trying to live life and find identity and find purpose and find our fulfillment in our work apart from God when he said this in Ecclesiastes 2. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which we labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. It is meaningless. Before we start feeling, you know, really despairing about this, He says this is a bleak perspective on life. Keep in mind that the writer of Ecclesiastes was writing about human human beings' attempts to find fulfillment apart from God. And the reality is that we were never created to find our fulfillment apart from God. And so he's talking about life in the reality that the fall has created, in a world that has been corrupted in a world that has been frustrated in a world that has been cursed and so here's the human predicament 
You and I and every other human being on this planet were created to be image bearers, partnering with God and moving the world forward, raising up the next generation, filling the world, creating culture, and using the skills, talents, abilities, and time that we have to make a difference in this world, to make something of it and move it forward. But the world is cursed. And God, our creator, cursed it. To which we go, thanks God, way to kick humanity when we were down, right? And not only, and some of you are squirming in your seats like, that's not nice. He's God, he's bigger than you. Yeah. But a lot of times when we really think about it, God's the one who put the tree in the garden. God's the one who said, don't touch it. God knew they were going to touch it. Sure enough, they touched it. Then he curses not only them, but he curses us. We didn't touch the fruit, but we're certainly feeling the effects of it. To which my kids would go, that's not fair. And I would respond, the world's not fair, right? And the joys, the thorns and thistles of parenthood. Um, But what if we're looking at this all wrong? What if? The curses were not simply the punitive consequence of an angry, spited God who's mad at his image bearers for disobeying him. What if they were actually the loving response of a father God who created us to do relationship with him and still wanted that? What if they were redemptive and not simply punitive? That would feel a whole lot better when we look at them. Well, let's consider them for a moment. Consider Adam and Eve, our most ancient ancestors, and consider the evidence here. When Adam and Eve began to question whether God was good, began to question whether he had somehow made them deficient, what was their knee-jerk reaction? Reach for the pseudo-savior, reach for the fruit, take a bite, because this can give me what he withheld from me. And when their eyes were suddenly open and they felt ashamed that they were naked, they felt overly vulnerable, what did they do? They reached for the pseudo-savior of the fig leaves and they tried to create coverings for themselves. And when Adam and Eve heard God walking in the garden, coming towards them, what did they do? They hid behind a bush as if they can somehow hide from their creator. But in all of these things, they showed our human propensity to try to take matters into our own hands, to solve our own problems, to do things our way, to move away from him as opposed to running to him. But keep in mind, why did God create us? To be in relationship with him, to partner with him in moving the world forward. And now... He recognizes that our tendency will be to run to the very things that he created us to join him in, namely having kids, our relationship with one another, and our work. We'll look to those things to satisfy, to fulfill, to give us purpose, to find our identity in. And he says, no, I'm going to cut the legs out from under those things. I'm going to curse them and frustrate them in such a way that you will never find your identity. You will never find your fulfillment. You will never find your purpose in those things. You'll only be able to find it in me. And in so doing, the curses cut a God-shaped hole in all of us that can only be filled with him.
Is this making sense? So no, you won't find your fulfillment in bearing children. You will find pain. You will find frustration. And you will find joy because we were created to do this, but you will still experience tremendous amounts of pain. And not just when you're bringing them into the world, but as you're raising them up through it. Many of you have felt your hearts pierced because of children who have chosen to express their own individuality and their own ability to have free will. And no, your spouse will never be able to complete you regardless of what Jerry Maguire said. Because you are already complete in Christ. You find your completion in him. A spouse might be a partner to you in, in doing life. But even if you are single, you are still complete in him. And do not for a moment begin to believe that you are deficient because you are single. And you will never, ever, ever find your fulfillment in the work of your hands. Regardless of how well you do how much money you make and how high your name is on the, the marquee. It'll never fulfill you. I, I, I always think about, I don't always think about it, but I thought about it this morning. I think about uh, that, that what um, Rockefeller, who at the time was one of, if not the most wealthy men in the world. Somebody asked Rockefeller, hey, how much money is enough? How do you know you've arrived? And his response, just a little bit more. Right? If that guy couldn't find fulfillment in his accumulation, then we're nowhere near there. And we will never get there. But what he recognized and what he articulated for all of us is that when we try to find our identity by putting a ladder on the wall of accomplishment and work, we have put our ladder against the wrong wall. And perhaps what we need to remember is that we were already complete where we were. And everything that we do Every relationship that we have, everything we do from this moment forward is an outflow of what we already, what is already true of us. I am a child of God. He loves me. He has adopted me into his family and I am completely and utterly secure in that. I need to do nothing more than rest in that. And then, and then I begin to step and every step I take is with the foundation of knowing I'm his kid, created in his image. He loves me. And he's invited me to join him in moving this world forward. I'm going to do it imperfectly. I'm going to make some mistakes. But I'll tell you what, it brings me far more joy watching my boys join me in, moving, in doing something than having it be perfect. There are times as a faulty human being that I would prefer it to be perfect. But if I had to make the decision of do I want my boys to do it with me or do I want to do it myself, I would pick them with me every time. And your father, who is far less flawed than me, that's an understatement. That's called hyperbole, by the way, and that is a, a literary device, not a character flaw. Okay? Um, <laughs> your father loves you more than you could ever possibly, possibly fathom. And he's invited you to join him in moving the world forward. But first, you must recognize who you are. You don't do things to earn who you are. You do them out of who you are. Making sense? Okay, that wasn't in the notes. So looked at from this perspective, we can begin to see the curses for what they were. They were the loving response of our creator who recognized that we 
humanity, because of sin, were bent to our own devices. And this was his loving way of bending our hearts back towards him and reminding us that you will never find your fulfillment apart from me. Or as Augustine famously said, you have created for us for yourself, O Lord, and man will be restless until we rest in you. We will seek to find our fulfillment in everything, our work, our relationships, our accomplishments, our kids' success, our accumulation. But it will never satisfy until we come to that point of recognizing, God, I'm already complete in you. I need you. Let's do life together. And then suddenly everything changes. You were created to move this world forward with God. But if you simply try to move this world forward for God apart from him, then you're like that light bulb devoid of being screwed in. You're not going to be bearing any light. You're not going to be fruitful. You are nothing more than a glorified paperweight. And you're missing the point of what you were created for. I, I got, God reminded me of this very vividly about two or three weeks before I came to Lighthouse. I was having a journaling session with him one night. Um, and I said, God, I need to know what you want me to do. At the time, I was kind of weighing about three different directions I could go. Do I go get my MA in writing and become a professional writer? Do I go become a, you know, go get my PhD so I can teach full-time at, at, you know, university? Do I go back into pastoring or some option? I don't know. God, I want to know what you want. And, and so I, I wrote that question. God, I need fresh marching orders. What do you want? And then I just waited for the Holy Spirit to, to impress something on my heart. And I felt as strongly as I've ever heard him speak to me, I felt him go, you can do anything you want. And my initial response was, no, 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 not what I want. What do you want? That was, I kid you not, that was, and I wrote that. No, 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 no. I might have only done two no's, but I, I felt like there were me. What do you want? And this is what I felt like God impressed on my heart. I don't care what you do. I just want to be in it with you. We have freedom to join God, to use our skills, our talents, our abilities. Is there one job you must do that God is preparing? I believe that he gives us freedom to choose, but he also helps direct our paths and he knows what we will choose. But don't for a moment think that that doesn't mean you don't have freedom. You get to pick what you want to do. You get to look at what you're good at and say, okay, God, will you open doors and stuff? And I I, I can't. As a human being on this side of eternity, I can't perfectly figure out where God's sovereignty and our freedom kind of meet. But you have freedom. But what we know for certain is that if you try to do it apart from him, it will fall flat. It doesn't matter if you're in ministry. It doesn't matter if you experience great success. It doesn't matter how attractive or how wealthy your spouse is. It doesn't matter how successful your kids are. If you try to do this apart from God, it'll feel empty. It'll never be enough. And God set it up that way because he loves us enough that he doesn't want us to find our satisfaction in this world apart from him. 
Now, before we start beating ourselves up and going, okay, that's easy for you to say that God wants to use you and be with you. You're a pastor, Eric. But, but how could God use me, right? I, I'm, I, I'm not educated. I'm, I'm not, um, I, I, I don't know how he could, I, I have messed up a ton. I have d- disobeyed him a ton. Yeah, we all have. If it wasn't Adam and Eve, it would have been us. And God has a habit of moving towards and rehabilitating his image bearers. He doesn't give up on us. Just look at the way he responded to Adam and Eve. He didn't leave them in the bushes huddling, hiding. He moved towards them. And when he recognized that they were bent away from him, he blessed them with curses that bent them back towards him. And when he recognized that they had taken into their own hands to try to cover their nakedness, he took it into his hands to deal with their nakedness. Jump down to verse 21 of of Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is part of the, the Genesis story that we don't often talk about, but it's really important. Because God recognized that humanity's propensity, now that they are aware of their nakedness, now that sin has entered the world, is to be embarrassed, feel vulnerable, feel shamed, and want to hide. And rather than beating them up about that or stripping them and making them stand there, he clothes them. But he uses skins. And where did the skins come from? Obviously, an animal had to die to cover their nakedness. The first recorded death in all of the Bible is a direct result of their disobedience. And it is at the hands of a loving God who is addressing their nakedness. And by the way, before we focus too much attention on that, understand that this is foreshadowing of so much that will happen in the Bible because later on, he's going to institute the entire sacrificial system as a way of of giving ceremonial cleanliness to people so they can come into his presence. We'll talk a little bit more about that to come in another week. But it also hearkened to something far greater, a sacrifice that God would make that would deal with our sin and our shame and our separation from him once and for all. Because a couple of centuries later, God would send his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God in human flesh, to take on flesh, to walk amongst us, and ultimately to die a gruesome death, the hands of of Gentiles. And he died for us so that we could be restored back into relationship with him. And so that we could join him in moving the world forward. Not so that we could escape the world, but that we could regain both our, our role in identity as his image bearers and his kids. And secondarily, so that we could join him in moving the world forward as his ambassadors of hope. The children of light that shine in the darkness. That is what you and I have been invited into. It's an adventure And I want you to know, if you find yourself sitting there right now and going, okay, I recognize the world is broken and it's discouraging. My world is broken 
and I'm discouraged. My kids, <laughs> my kids don't listen to me. I, I, I'm talking hypothetically, but I'm also sometimes talking about myself. You know, my kids are just doing their own thing. Or perhaps you're thinking, my marriage is so dang frustrating. Or when will I ever meet a partner, a spouse? Or you look at your work and you just go, oh, gosh, Monday's coming. Right? And you begin to despair. Remember this. God set it up this way and what you are experiencing is what all of us experience. But he also didn't design us to just have to go through life with this malaise of, ah, the world is broken and then we die. No. He created us to do life with him. He has intentionally thwarted the things that you will run to for your satisfaction, fulfillment, and purpose so that you will find your purpose, your provision, and your identity in him. And regardless of what you put your hands to, regardless of what you do from the moment you walk out of here, regardless of what your relational status is, God wants to enter into it with you and walk with you through it. And he has this uncanny ability to bring beauty from messiness. And so the invitation this morning as I invite the worship team forward is to stop trying to do life on your own. To stop, to stop trying to find your fulfillment in everything else and rest in him and invite him into every aspect of your life. Maybe there's some things he's going to ask you to lay down. Maybe he is going to invite you to simply rest so that you don't just keep that ceaseless chasing after the sun because it's meaningless apart from him. And you will feel restless until you're able to rest fully in him. So Father God, we invite you to have your way with us. We invite you to remind us again today and as we leave here, to keep reminding us that you made us for you in your image to do life with you and to be used by you in moving this world forward. We have great purpose. We have great value in your eyes. But we need you because apart from you, it's meaningless. A chasing after the sun. So help yourself to our lives. And invite, help us to join you in where you're already moving and working. In our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools. Glorify yourself in us, Father God. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.